Welcome to Structurally Sound. I am Grant Threet, one of your hosts here with my co-host Michael Asplund and Marcus Funk. And thank you for joining us today in a special edition of our podcast. Marcus? I'm, I'm Marcus Funk. We are recording this at 11.40 a.m. on Friday, October the 13th. Given the gravity of everything that's happened in the Middle East over the last week or so and, you know, the potential gravity of what could come next, any number of, of things that could come next, thought it'd be great to get tapped into the expertise in Criminal Justice College about sort of the context of this conflict and get an expert view on where we could go from there because it news media tends to be very now, now, now. And I could see people skimming the headlines thinking, Oh, well, it's the middle East. It's always a crisis. And then not getting that context, not seeing things. And I also teach the media literacy course here at Sam. And I would definitely recommend, please don't get your news about this from cable news. Please don't get it from social media, whatever you do. Uh, Apple News is a good place, but reputable, credible mainstream organizations. And um, I'm, just, I'm just universally horrified by everything that's happening, everything that's happened and eager to, to hear y'all's thoughts. So, again, welcome. Uh, my name is Michael Aspelon. I'm the executive director of the Institute for Homeland Security here at Sam Houston State University. As we've talked about, our focus is on critical infrastructure protection issues. However, uh, the events that have occurred over the last uh, week uh, have uh, prompted me to uh, make a decision to have a podcast, a special podcast uh, edition to talk about this issue that's occurring uh, globally. Uh, as I heard it described as being the 9-11 for Israel and then some numbers about we lost in our 9-11, we lost 3,000 plus people, not to mention folks that were impacted uh, through medical issues that followed. Uh, and when you put that in the context of 330 million residents or people who live in the U.S., compared to the numbers that have been lost now in Israel and what their population is, this is significantly more impactful. Uh, in fact, one of, uh, one of our participants today, Nadav Marag, who will introduce himself in a minute, has shared with me that he has has friends, he has family, he has uh, acquaintances who are on the ground uh, impacted by this event. So I want to use this opportunity uh, for the for our team to reflect on what's happening and maybe provide some uh, uh, some perspective and insights that you may not get uh, other places. And so what I'd like to do is introduce first Dr. Nadav Marag, who is the chair of security studies department here at Sam Houston State under the College of Criminal Justice. And then I'm going to go to uh, Scott McHugh, who is a member of the IHS team here. And the, the goal for this dialogue is to be just that, is that Grant and Marcus and I are just going to let uh, the two of you gentlemen talk this uh, between yourselves and we'll just see where this goes. And if there's an opportunity that you guys want to ask, I'm going to allow you guys to ask us, what do you think? This is going to be a reverse uh a reverse interview almost in some ways. Uh, so Nadav, let's start with you. If you could kind of talk about your background and why this is relevant to you. 
Sure. So um, as you mentioned, Mike, I'm chair of the Department of Security Studies here at Sam Houston State. I uh, previously served, I was a captain in the uh, Israel Defense Forces way, way back when I was a young man. And then uh, I served as a senior director at the Israeli National Security Council, which at the time consisted of about 10 people. Uh, and our job was to advise the prime minister and the cabinet in Israel on national security matters, essentially to provide options and different scenarios for the prime minister and let him decide, you know, which ones he wanted to pursue. Um, so given that, I've obviously been following events in Israel very, very closely uh, and trying to understand where this might be going. Uh, but as I was asked to provide a little bit of context, uh, let me say a few words about um, uh, how we how this came about. So, the, so, so Scott, uh, I'm sorry, before you jump into that, let me, let's have Scott introduce himself, then I'll come back to you, Nadav. So uh, Scott McHugh, thanks for being here. A little bit about your background. Well, thanks, Mike. Really appreciate the opportunity to chat with everybody. Uh, as Mike said, my name is Scott McHugh, and I spent 22 years with the federal government uh, as an intelligence officer, most of that overseas, and retired in 98. And for the last 25 years, I've been uh, chief security officer of various Fortune 10 companies. Uh, so I've had a, a great corporate experience uh, career and a great uh, government career as well. Okay, so let's get started. I'm sorry to interrupt you there, Nadav, but go ahead and with your background, and then we'll we'll kind of take it off. And I'm I'm actually just going to hand it off to the two of you guys to have your dialogue. So go for it. No problem at all, Mike. Um, so to provide a little bit of context, and I won't go back to the genesis of the conflict between the Israelis and Palestinians because we would need to be here for several hours, uh, and I doubt the audience would be interested in listening that long. Um, however, I will start with the 1990s uh, because that was a period of time where the Israelis and the Palestinians reached a uh, – the, the conclusion uh, that was reached in Israel after an uprising in, uh, among the Palestinians was that the only solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was political, that there wasn't a military solution. And as a result of that negotiation, began between Israel and the primary sort of political and essentially terrorist uh, entity on the Palestinian side, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Uh, in the 1990s, uh, the negotiations began in and around the city of Oslo, the capital of Norway, and hence it's called the Oslo Peace Process. The basic fundamental assumption of the peace process was that the, for A, a that the Israelis and Palestinians could sit down and figure out a way to negotiate what's called a two-state solution, where there would be a Palestinian state alongside the state of Israel. Um, but that that couldn't be done immediately. And so there needed to be an interim process in which the Israelis and Palestinians were working together, developing trust, and that it would be uh, at the end of this process, and it was it was supposed to be a five-year process, there could be um, a some sort of a uh, final settlement between the Israelis and Palestinians, whatever that would look like. Uh, part of this process was Israel turning over territory and establishing for the first time a Palestinian government that had never existed before in the West Bank or in the Gaza Strip. Um, and and so the, uh, the premise here was Israel would turn over actual territory, Palestinian population centers, cities in the West Bank, cities in the Gaza Strip, to, the, uh, to this newly established Palestinian government called the Palestinian National Authority. And they would cooperate with Israel to prevent terrorist attacks coming from those areas into Israeli territory. And over time, those relationships would strengthen and it would create the foundation for a final settlement, a final agreement of some kind between the two sides. That, for a variety of reasons, didn't end up happening and came crashing down in October of 2000 with what is called the Second Intifada, the Second Palestinian Uprising. Um, 
fast forward from that to um, the, the Palestinians remained in control of the cities in the West Bank and in control of the cities in the Gaza Strip. And fast forward to 2005, where the Israeli government decided that it would be more beneficial for it to just pull entirely out of the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip is a very small area. It's about the length of the island of Manhattan, maybe a little bit uh, uh, longer than that and a little bit wider. It's got about 2 million people or a bit more over 2 million people living in it. So it has about 2,000 people per square kilometer. And it's one of the most crowded places on planet Earth. Um, and uh, the thinking in Israel at the time was that it would turn over the entire Gaza Strip, not just the cities in the Strip, but the entire Strip to the Palestinian Authority and pull out. There were about 7,000 Israeli settlers living in the Gaza Strip to dismantle the settlements and pull them out of uh of, uh, of the Strip and turn the entire thing over to the Palestinian Authority. That turned out in hindsight to be a gross miscalculation because uh, within about a year and a half in early 2007, Hamas took control of the, Gaza, the entirety of the Gaza Strip, kicked out the Palestinian Authority, including killing quite a few of their personnel in Gaza. Uh, so what you have essentially now are two Palestinian governments, the, the Hamas government in the Gaza Strip and the Palestinian Authority government that controls the cities of the West Bank. So from that point on, 2007 on, Hamas was in control of the Gaza Strip. And Hamas is a terrorist organization. It's certainly classified such under U.S. law. Uh, the State Department classifies it as puts it on a list of, of foreign terrorist organizations. Um, and, it, and it, along with some other terrorist organizations like Palestinian Islamic Jihad in the Gaza Strip, are essentially committed to the destruction of Israel. Uh, they, uh, from, their, they, for their, from their perspective, it's both a religious and a political requirement to uh, eradicate the state of Israel. Uh, the Israeli thinking over time was Hamas would change because uh, Hamas had not been in control of Palestinians, not been responsible for the lives of their fellow Palestinians up until that point in time. Uh, they had always been, had the luxury, you could say, of operating as a purely terrorist organization without having to, uh, you know, answer to uh, the needs of a civilian population. They did provide aid to the population over time. They were also a uh, uh, an organization that provided um, food and, and, and medical support to the population, but they weren't in charge. And so they didn't have to answer to the population. Population. So the Israeli thinking was Hamas would change, that it would become more pragmatic, and that over time it would understand that really what it needs to do is try to create conditions in the Gaza Strip um, that are good for the Palestinians living there. And that means they need then cooperating with Israel because the Gaza Strip is a large area. Where it doesn't have a lot of farmland. It's primarily urban, um, and, 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 and it's got a very large population, I should say. And um, as a result of that, it's dependent very much on supplies from Israel and on working in Israel. So before this crisis broke out last Saturday, uh, 17,000 Gazans were given permits on a daily basis to go and work inside of Israel. Um, and that was a major source of income for their families. Uh, the, there was something along the level of 600 to 700 trucks a day that would cross the border from Israel into the Gaza Strip, providing all manner of goods that were net, that the Gazans needed. Um, the electricity supply, the water supply, all of that came from Israel. And so um, uh, essentially the Israeli thinking was because they were so vulnerable and so dependent on Israel, it would be Hamas would become pragmatic and would understand that it was in their interests to uh, to govern the Strip and cooperate with Israel. They didn't need to like Israel. They didn't need to recognize Israel, um, but they but they would need to work with Israel on a regular basis. Um, and, and that is one of the reasons why Israel was caught completely flat footed. Um, in, in one of the greatest intelligence failures in Israeli history after the uh, Yom Kippur War 
Tower intelligence failure of uh, 1973, which is 50 years ago. Um, but this will be something I think that will be um, studied in, in universities around the country and in, uh, uh, um, in at West Point and so on and so forth, uh, the Naval Academy, as one of the great intelligence failures of the modern era. Um, but the but it was all based on this assumption that when you're looking at information about what's going on, first of all, Israel wasn't aware enough of all the activities that were going on and all the planning that went into this uh, heinous attack that occurred that um, uh, claimed the lives of 1,200 Israeli civilians, uh, including children, including um, uh, retired people, uh, elderly people, uh, about 120 of whom were captured and taken into the Gaza Strip as hostages. Um, uh, people going door, terrorists, Hamas terrorists going door to door and just shooting people. Um, something like a massacre of this type had never happened in Israel before. Uh, Israel's had wars, but it's never had a massacre of its civilians along along these lines. Uh, and in fact, it's it's a global event in the sense that um, other countries haven't experienced this either. Mike mentioned 9-11, about 3,000 Americans uh, regrettably lost their lives in 9-11. If you were to equate this, um, this would be equivalent to, say, a uh, terrorist organization crossing the border from Mexico and ki- killing around 35,000 Americans. That would give you a sense of how what, what the scope is of this particular event. And there's also some 2,500 injured, so and some of them will, won't survive this. So uh, it's 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 really a game-changing event from the Israeli perspective. But it was the the, the mistake that was made was that the army wasn't prepared, the police weren't prepared, uh, the citizenry wasn't properly prepared because the uh, the thinking was no matter what they're doing, they're all the training that they're involved in, it's not designed to produce this sort of an attack because they realize that this would be very bad for them and that the Israeli response will be um, unprecedented, and it is, as we're seeing in the Gaza Strip, um, and that there's no uh, situation where they could rationally conceive of this being something in their interests. And as a result, the Israeli side, which is looking for rationality on the Palestinian side, assumes that they're going to behave the same way and therefore that they wouldn't dare initiate an attack of this kind. Clearly, they were wrong. Okay, so I was just going to dialogue, but now I'll just be the mediator, right? All right, Scott, thoughts, comments? You've been feverishly scribbling away there. I'll just a couple of notes to, to remind myself, because as I've been li- was listening to Nadav, it was bringing back uh, events that have occurred in my life. I, as I mentioned, I spent a lot of my career assigned overseas, primarily in the Middle East, oddly enough. And one of those tours was in 85, 86 in Lebanon. So I was in Beirut for the Israeli uh, incursion into Lebanon that was, in essence, resulted in the creation of Hezbollah. Uh, And that prior to that point, Hezbollah didn't really exist. Uh, But the Iranians in particular uh, capitalized on the Shia population there and their dissatisfaction with what was going on with the invasion and, more importantly, with the Palestinian camps that existed within uh, Lebanon. And, And that was really the genesis of Hezbollah, which I would I would add to what uh, Nadav mentioned is that that's actually probably the bigger risk in this current of event that we are looking at is that what's going to happen with respect to Hezbollah. Do they get involved? They're much better armed, much better organized, much better command and control and operations than Hamas does it's sort of varsity junior varsity type type approach from a capabilities perspective and i was reflecting back to uh to, to my time in in lebanon and one of the things that is striking that nadav sort of touched on briefly was the the movement of uh civilians within the 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 gaza strip 
in response to the Israelis' uh, military operations in response to this attack from last week is it that's being held up in many respects because nobody wants to allow the refugees into their country. And I hearkened back to there was well over a million, uh, well over a million uh, Palestinians in Lebanon, a large portion of them in Beirut themselves, uh, and that during the war with the Israelis in 85, 86, the, they wanted to, to, to get the folks out of Lebanon and have them resettle. That was going to be one of the solutions of dispersing them throughout the region uh, and have countries take them and, and assimilate them into their countries, and nobody would take them. Uh, they, we went back and forth for months trying to figure out where to place them, and they ended up going to Tunisia uh, for part the bulk the bulk of them, and they quickly quickly departed from that area. Uh, but anyways, it just brought back a lot of of memories and a lot of concerns about how. In many respects, this is deja vu all over again, to quote Yogi Berra, in that this is a different time, but it seems like we're repeating the same circumstances over and over again for the same reasons with the same players uh, and the same potential outcomes into the future. So those are are my initial thoughts. Uh, I I did want to add just a couple of quick, quick items uh, with regard to the intelligence failure that uh, Nadav was talking about. My guess is that when there's a post-mortem done on what transpired, that and it shouldn't happen now. And I, I think it's wrong for the media to be keeping it, to ask this question. I, I think that's something that needs to be addressed later on. But I think he's going to find or they're going to find exactly what Nadav said, is that there was a sense of believing their own rhetoric, meaning that things were better, that the quality of life was better, economics were better, there were more people working in Israel, the, the consumer goods and whatnot were, were uh, being transported into Gaza, and that things would not result in any type of violence. And that bias, that analytical bias, uh, probably impacted the collection that did occur by the intelligence services as to whether this was an impending uh, war environment. But the second thing that I think it's going to show is that we, meaning the U.S., didn't pick up on this either, nor did the Brits or any of the other folks that are actively working that region. Everybody missed it, which tells me first and foremost that this was probably a repetition of the model that al-Qaeda was implementing back in the day of Osama bin Laden to where everything was done face-to-face and that they weren't using electronics, they weren't using anything that had a technological capability, which meant that you had couriers in place. And I'm bringing that up because I my guess is, and I feel very strongly about this, that the postmortem analysis about the intelligence failure is probably going to reveal that we, the collective we of the intelligence community, wasn't performing collection requirements looking for couriers. We were for al-Qaeda because we figured it out from intelligence that we picked up in Afghanistan and Iraq. But my guess is that we were not attuned to the possibility of couriers and therefore weren't really looking for couriers. And when Scott McHugh showed up in a place that he typically normally wouldn't be, it didn't raise any flags because couriers weren't on the radar for collection requirements. So, Nadav, you've heard Scott 
make a number of comments. What are you, what's your thoughts, reactions? I think he's raised a number of really critical points. Um, let me start with the, the intelligence piece. One of the things that Israel lost in a really big way when it withdrew from the Gaza Strip was the ability to access human agents, humans, human intelligence. Um, because when you're outside the Strip, you're, it's much more difficult to meet with people that you've got in place in the Strip who can provide information on what's going on. You have to rely much more on what's called SIGINT, signals intelligence or electronic means of gathering and Information. So, as Scott mentioned, by going um, low tech to uh, you know people passing messages and using typewriters even um, rather than uh, computers, it becomes much harder to get a picture of what's going on. So, I think that's 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 part of this problem. Um, Scott also mentioned Hezbollah in Lebanon. This is a really critical point. We don't know where the war is going to go yet. There are already uh, tit for tat attacks on the northern border between Israel and Lebanon, uh, between Israeli forces and Hezbollah. Hezbollah is heating things up a little bit to put pressure on Israel to try to minimize its capabilities in terms of, uh, of attacking uh, the, uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad in the Gaza Strip. So uh, whether or not that shifts, so we're, we're at a point where um, if you think about an escalation ladder, um, the first step of the escalation was for Hamas to allow some of those Palestinian groups that Scott mentioned in Lebanon operate against Israel, fire rockets into Israel or mortars into Israel. We've already passed that stage. That was the first two, two or three days of the conflict. Um, now we're at the stage where Hezbollah is actively engaging, but at a low level as a way of trying to deter Israel from invading Gaza, as a way of trying to put pressure on Israel. Um, and then the next step of that escalation ladder is a full-scale uh, war between Israel and Hezbollah. And sometimes, even if that's not planned by either side, events in the field can sometimes create a dynamic uh, which leads to that situation. I think that's a very high likelihood. I cannot, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't say for sure if that will happen. That's a very high likelihood. I think the United States administration thinks it is too, because they sent a carrier group and now there's another one en route. Uh, we're talking about quite a bit of firepower that if directed at Hezbollah assets in Southern Lebanon could be quite devastating to Hezbollah. And Hezbollah, of course, knows this and understands this. And so do their Iranian patriot, uh, patrons. The um, Israeli intelligence community uh, back in the day when I was familiar with with the intelligence documents, uh, thought of Hezbollah as an arm, as an adjunct of Iran. Um, and so the Iranians are going to be also very aware. And, you know, the question will be for Iran and for Hezbollah, do they really want to get themselves involved in a conflict with the United States? And the question will, for the United States will be, does it really want to get itself, you know, is it willing to support Israel to the degree that it engages in active warfare with Hezbollah, if need be? So uh, all of those things are variables that are at play. We don't know what's going to happen. But to shift us back for a moment to the Gaza Strip, um, an attack of this scope, which again is unprecedented, never happened in Israel. Um, if you think about it in a historical context, there has never been a massacre of Jews at this level since the Holocaust. So this is not an, an operation of a few teams of Hamas terrorists crossing the border and maybe kidnapping a few people, killing a few people. This is a game-changing event in the Middle East. This is not something that the Israeli government can conceive of as something that they can just, you know, carry out more air operations in, in, in the Gaza Strip and, you know, like previous situations and just pull back. Um, it's very likely that it's going to have to take over either parts of the Gaza Strip or the entire Gaza Strip and may have to um, occupy it in perpetuity because 
if it doesn't do so, if its stated claim, which it, its stated claim is to get rid of Hamas's rule in the Gaza Strip, to completely dismantle that. I don't really see a scenario where that can be done effectively without a reoccupation of the Gaza Strip. That in- involves huge problems. Number one, a lot of it, of, uh, because it's a very, uh, 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 very urban environment, um, and because the Palestinians have been able to plan and prepare for a ground invasion, a lot of Israeli soldiers are going to die in the process. A lot of Palestinian civilians who are caught in the in the crossfire are going to die in the process. And then Israel will be responsible for the welfare of 2.2 million Palestinians who are living in uh, areas that have been uh, destroyed by the Israeli Air Force, who uh, are uh, going to be have no livelihood whatsoever, and unemployment was very high as it was in the Gaza Strip, and are going to be entirely dependent on aid from Israel um, and possibly foreign donors. Uh, that in and of itself is something uh, that could deter uh, an Israeli uh, you know, reoccupation of the Strip. But on the other hand, if you really want to dismantle Hamas and ensure that Hamas can no longer rule any territory, um, then you have to go in. If you think about Hamas, you know, the Secretary of Defense uh, said Hamas is worse than ISIS. If you think about the international approach to ISIS, it was to go in and dismantle their so-called caliphate and retake all the territory that they controlled. Well, if that's going to be the approach to Hamas, then there's going to be the issue then of dealing with a very, very large uh, civilian population that has to be provided for. This is Marcus Funk again. You you mentioned that in the 90s, the calculus was that there was no military or tactical solution, realistically. Is that still the case? Because even a long-term occupation is going to come with major humanitarian issues, major – and we're already seeing – I mean, you know, cutting off food and water and fuel to the entire strip. Half the population of Gaza is under 19, hundreds of thousands of children, and I just – I don't – you know, you occupy, you fill that vacuum with with what? How long, you know, how feasible is that? Especially, you know, just last night, there were news reports that Israel is is telling people to move, you know, a million people to move out of northern Gaza. That's I remember Rita, you know, Hurricane Rita here in Houston, where people tried to get out to get away from a hurricane. Massive, total gridlock, nobody going anywhere. It just doesn't seem feasible. So what I mean, is there a military or tactical solution or is this another opportunity where at some point this has to become a political solution again? I think I think long term, um, uh, there is no such thing. I mean, just like Frank Hotswood said, the military tools are, are, are means to a political end. Um, so really, there is nothing that, you know, the, the end result is going to be a political result. But the question is, you know, which kind of military tools do you use and which, which, which situation do they create in terms of then reaching some sort of a political end? Um, Israel occupied in the, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank in 1967 uh, during the Six-Day War, and it ruled those areas uh, until the 1990s when they started to be turned over to the Palestinian Authority. So Israel is capable of doing so. It's done so in the past. It had something called the military administration that was responsible for the civilian population in these areas. Um, so it's not that Israel can't rule the Gaza Strip again in the future um, for whatever a period of time it needs to. Question is, does it want to? Uh, question is, can it go back now that the Palestinians have had a taste of having their own government in control, even though it was a Hamas government in the Gaza Strip? You know, can they go back? Uh, question is, you know, what sort of situation is going to be created? Is 
Gaza going to become like southern Lebanon, where the Israeli army was tied down for 18 years and had to fight a guerrilla war against insurgents? Um, I don't know that anybody has the answers. I'm pretty sure if you if you went to Jerusalem and went and sat down with the senior officials in the Israeli government and the security community in Israel, they wouldn't have the answers for you either. Um, it's all speculation. Nobody really knows where this needs to go. But there is no way that Israel can treat this as another operation against Hamas in the Gaza Strip, as you know we've seen in the past. This is a situation where leaving Hamas in control is virtually politically inconceivable in Israel. I mean, this the, the attack was so barbaric and so horrendous and so wide-ranging that for Israel to leave Hamas in power after all of this uh, would be a, a mark of its own tremendous weakness. And if there has been one lesson that Jewish history has taught to Jewish people um, over the ages, it's been that no one respects the weak. Just to follow up on that, I want to add a tactical component to it that I think addresses, not doesn't answer, but addresses your question, Marcus. There would be a huge cost to be able to go in and really wipe out and control that area afterwards. And, and I'll use as an example of that, my again, my time in, in Beirut and in Lebanon with the Palestinian refugees that were up there in the various camps. They were excellent at tunnel building. Now, they've built tunnels in Gaza. The, the, the estimate is that there's 300 miles of tunnels, tunnels upon tunnels within tunnels within that area that's a little bit bigger than, than Manhattan. So put that into context. And those tunnels, when we were in Beirut, were used to move uh, artillery and move rockets that were used to, sh to target us, as well as various Lebanese and Israeli locations in Lebanon. And they would fire off a number of rounds and then retreat to the tunnels and we had pretty, pretty good counter battery fire with our partners within the Lebanese army. And we actually had naval support just off the coast. And we couldn't wipe out through counter battery fire these particular artillery uh, pieces because of the tunnels. You're going to have that exact same issue here in a much larger scale than what we had in Lebanon. And so the cost is going to be just unbelievably large, and it's going to be an ongoing cost that's never going to end. It's going to be sort of like a, uh, what do they call them, a timeshare that just you end up paying for forever. Uh, and I'm not trying to be facetious here in that it, this is not a solution that's easily accomplished. So let's take this um, here to the U.S. Uh, Scott, I'm going to keep you on the, on the hook here. You teach a class in intelligence. And your class met yesterday and you had a conversation. You're, I think you told me you were week eight, nine. week nine, and have given them all the tools they need to uh, do a better than average job of assessing what's going on. Yeah. Cause I'm a really good teacher. Of course you are. <laughs> so what happened? So it was very disappointing, Mike. I, I got to tell you, this was this was the night that was dedicated to doing a case study and applying the various methodologies and the techniques that we've been talking about during the previous eight weeks to a terrorism issue. Well, I threw out the case study that I normally do and inserted the, the Israeli Gaza problem because it was timely and people understood it. And unfortunately, the result, Mike, was that 
I shook my head and said, I have failed because the analysis that I got from these graduate students, really top-end smart people, was was deficient. That's the nicest way that I can can say it, uh, and was not consistent with what they'd been taught, nor consistent with the level of intellect that was in the classroom. And the driver behind it was two things, and it's something that Nadav's already talked about. One was to what you had mentioned earlier, it was emotion-driven because they've gotten their news and they've gotten their quote-unquote facts from social media or from various and sundry uh, media outlets. And then two, there was the bias that was associated with wherever you fall on this spectrum, whether it's you're a supporter of one or another or you don't care, but that affected their ability to really uh, coherently analyze this issue from a from a terrorism uh, outcome, and I was very disappointed in what it is that I that I saw. But it drove home to me the importance of you have to be able to transcend yourself when you're doing analysis. You have to be able to step out and understand the target and see the world through their way of thinking, and then be be a, a disciplined adherent to the analytical methodologies and the conclusions that that provides, rather than trying to put in place your own interpretation of what that all means. I think that's a critical point that Scott raises um, in, in, in looking at intelligence and evaluating it. Um, we have a tendency as human beings to see the world through our own eyes. I mean, how could we not? But you have to try to do, carry out this very artificial and strange exercise of trying to see the world through someone else's eyes if you really want to understand. Uh, intelligence is based on a couple of things, but the primary aspects of it are, are capabilities and intentions, right? You could, the enemy, uh, could hate you very much, but all, they, if they all they have is a bow and arrow, well, they're not going to be, they don't have the capability to do very much to you. Um, so you need to look at their capabilities, but you also need to understand when, when and where they might use them and in what kind of sort of context. And of course, this intelligence failure in Israel was, was in part that. So, um, by, by assuming that others think the way that you think and the, the way you think is a universal human way of thinking, that's a very fundamental problem in, in terms of intelligence. It's very, very hard to combat. I want to say something, Mike, cause you mentioned, uh, you had mentioned the Homeland Security aspect of this. Uh, of course, I don't know. I'm not privy to discussions in the Pentagon or in the White House about whether, where, at what point the U.S. might involve itself in a shooting war if Hezbollah. I don't think the United States will involve itself militarily beyond um, what it's already doing, which is resupplying Israel with arms uh, in terms of the, the the situation in Gaza. But if the situation develops, and because Hezbollah has about 180,000 rockets and missiles that they can fire at all parts of Israel, um, you're going to see very, very widespread destruction inside of Israeli cities. A very very major crisis within Israel, much more so than we're seeing now. And uh, the United States very may, I mean, the president already kind of said that he has Israel's back and he's going to support it. So this could certainly lead in one scenario, at least to a U.S. military strike against Hezbollah and U.S. being actively involved from an air perspective and maybe a naval perspective offshore um, in hitting targets. Uh, if that is, were to happen, um, we're talking about a situation where we've got cells of Hezbollah operatives in the United States, embedded in the United States. 
the FBI has mentioned that in all 50 states, there have been investigations and some, in some cases prosecutions against Hezbollah operatives. Um, there are quite a few sh studies that show that Hezbollah has an infrastructure here in the United States. Um, it's mainly focused on gathering, uh, pur purchasing, uh, illegally purchasing weapons and on illegally raising funds for Hezbollah. Uh, but those individuals could presumably be targeted on terrorism missions domestically here in the homeland. So I think that is something that, um, that's one thing that we need to worry about um, if the scenario occurs in which Hezbollah and Israel start uh, go to war. Um, in the meantime, however, uh, today, Friday, the leader of Hamas, uh, one of the leaders of Hamas has called for a day of rage and called for uh, people supporting the Palestinian cause around the world to act in some way. And that means there is a threat to Jewish institutions here in the United States, whether it's synagogues, Jewish community centers, and others. Uh, in Europe, there are quite a few Jewish schools and, and Jewish synagogues that have been closed down um, because of fears that uh, that that might they might be attacked, uh, the French have outlawed any demonst pro-Palestinian demonstrations over the next few days to prevent those from getting out of hand. So we've got that Hamas-related threat, which is more towards individuals who want to take up the call to arms. But we have also got this much more professional Hezbollah threat that exists as well. And I was just going to say, just to add on to that, when I retired in 98, I went to work for a multinational consumer products company. And one of the first things that I did was that, that the company was being uh, targeted repeatedly for uh, cargo hijackings, truck hijackings of, of cigarettes, because that was very easy to sell on the black market and a truck, a 53-foot trailer truck that was $2 million worth of cigarettes. And the FBI came to us and said, look, Hezbollah is actually behind this on the 95 corridor on the East Coast, and we're using these to finance Hezbollah operations back in Beirut. And so we worked very closely with them to uh, to, to, to attack this. But that was 1998. So that's this is 25 years later that we're talking about. It. That gives you some sense as to how embedded they are in U.S. society. So we try to keep uh, the dialogue to about 40 to 45 minutes, and we're closing in now on that time. Um, what I'd like to do is, so, so let's, let's have the conversation of the so what for a minute. Uh, so what for us as members of the Sam Houston State University academic community, as the students who might be listening to this, people who are in the greater Houston area and our partners, what what do we need to be thinking about? What, what is, what is our level of engagement? I, and, and I'm on one hand, I'm saying, you know, I'm thinking, you know, see something, say something and kind of the dialogue we just had, but I'm, I'm kind of disappointed actually. I shouldn't be surprised, but I, I am disappointed as I see the news and the, and the protests that have broken out on both sides of the issue. And it's, it, this is, to me, it's a bunch of nonsense is that we've got people who are engaged in uh, engaging in criminal activity, not just it's one thing to have exercise your First Amendment right to free speech, which I support. Say what you need to say. But this fact that it's being turned into skirmishes in the street and fights and targeting of uh, the Jewish community or people who take up uh, one side or the other. So that said, what's the so what? What, what would you encourage for people who are here at Sam Houston as they engage in this discussion and for just for, for uh, peace, 
uh, what does that look like? And, and what, what I mean, peace is it peaceful protest or peaceful um, ex- expressing your opinion. I'll start with uh, Nadav and then I'll come over to Scott. I think in terms of protests, um, it's going to be very hard. I mean, this is a very emotional situation now for everybody involved in this conflict. Um, uh, you know, to suggest that people take a breath and wait and see how things play out is probably not realistic. Um, so I think it's really up to law enforcement to um, to be prepared for situations where these kinds of demonstrations might get out of hand and might involve threat to the public or threat to property. Um, and uh, tr- try to negotiate with the people who are organizing these demonstrations to ensure that they have an open channel to law enforcement, to talk with law enforcement and uh, to tell them what their plans are and how they plan to organize things. And so that law enforcement can also identify the uh, fringe elements in these demonstrations, and it's always some fringe element that is willing to engage in violent activity. So to keep this at the level of the First Amendment and not allow it to become threats, intimidation, violence uh, to others. Other than that, I would say, again, going back to the Hezbollah issue, if it does become a broader regional war, we really do need to worry about potential terrorist attacks in the homeland. So so I'm going to answer in the context of what it is that we can control, Mike. Because uh, I think that that I couldn't say it any better than Nadav did with respect to the education and the First Amendment and the protest issue. But I think what we can control, particularly within the Institute, is from an education and an intelligence uh, training perspective of helping people, whether it's a pro- training a future professional uh, intelligence officer or whether it's taking and providing somebody with the tools to do their own intelligence analysis, really a follow-up on what Nadab was saying, and come up with their own analysis for ways that can actually be uh, credibly justified and have some analytical rigor to them uh, is one of the things that we can take on as a responsibility of providing that knowledge and providing that education, not only to our students within SAM that are here now, but those within the community as part of an outreach, a workshop, a webinar type approach to where we're helping people to understand what tools should they be looking at these issues uh, or what lens should I say that they're looking at these issues through so that they can better see whether they or understand what they're seeing. And, and I think at the end it becomes um, a maturity issue is I think it is possible we're here in the U.S. and you you may have an opinion about this, but take a breath. Don't go to your junk news sites. If you truly are interested in having to being informed, then take some time to get informed. Uh, don't just go check out. I'm not even going to name networks, but there's places you can go that, you know, they are emotional, emotional based news reports. And I'm using uh, the caveat there uh, to don't get caught up in that. Uh, so and then, Grant, did you have something you wanted to add to any of this? Because I saw you lean in. No. To the mic. No, no, I, 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 I think it's uh, it's a right and, and good discussion. I mean, you know, it's uh, one of the keys I think I heard here today is not letting your own bias get in the way. And that goes hand in hand with um, doing your own intelligence assessment and um, and practice at that, too. It's uh, it's not automatic, you know, as we talked about with human nature. I think it takes an, an effort. I think the key in education is, and whether we're talking about education for current affairs and things that are going on in the world or education for historical context or what have you, is that education is hard. 
And, and it's your responsibility as a person who wants to be educated. It's not the responsibility of your professor. It's not the responsibility of the news media outlet to educate you. If you want to take, this is a, a, a very, very awesome responsibility. And if you want to take it on, you have to be prepared to work, which means you need to be able to think critically. You need to be able to figure out which are the more reputable sources of information. You need to be able to triangulate information. And all of that is on you. And if that's what you're, what's important for you, you need to take that on. An important part of that, what I tell my media literacy students, is transparency. You know, is there a name that's written the article or, or done the article? Do they have a LinkedIn profile? Are they real people, or is this just something ginned up to sow chaos or sow emotions? A lot of what we're seeing online and on social media isn't necessarily fraudulent or AI generated. It's just uh, from another time or another place, or it's been doctored just enough that it's it it yeah you know it it is a thing that happens somewhere at some point, but it's being manipulated to manipulate you and just taking a breath for even just ten seconds. And I know that's hard. You know I know how emotional this topic can be, and I think you know doing that work to find curated professional news organizations. My professional opinion as a journalism PhD: don't watch cable news ever. There is no, no, it's, it's just don't, you know, if there's something going on that you need 24 hour news coverage, turn on one of the mains like ABC, CBS, NBC. They're usually much better than I'm not even going to going to say, them, you know, but it's hard. And also, too, this is something that affects all of us in different ways. I mean, I have Muslim students. I have Jewish students. This is something that people are going to be thinking about and emotionally connected to and building space for those conversations in healthy, productive ways is something we can do as educators. That's also challenging. But, you know, if we don't if that if they don't find that environment in a university, where are they going to find it? So. So I want to thank you guys for participating to Nadav, to Scott, uh, to the team here uh, to spend some time talking about what's a, a, a very difficult time. Thoughts and prayers to those who are caught up in this. Um, typically, we would end by saying we're disruptive, but helpful and be to be clever. But, but uh, in, in this case, I'm going to go with something else, which is we want to complement to complete. Uh, and so as this uh, unfolds, gentlemen, if you are willing over the next couple of weeks, might just reassemble here and have this conversation, ongoing conversation on on this particular topic as it is relevant. So I just encourage you all to uh, do something nice for somebody this weekend. Uh, that's uh, don't get into arguments, be respectful of each other's uh, perspectives. And uh, maybe we're not going to have a necessarily a direct impact on this, but we certainly don't need to contribute to continuing chaos. So with that, thank you for being here. This will be posted. I think, in real time today. And uh, we'll uh, see you all next time on Structurally Sound. Thanks very much. Structurally Sound is the podcast for the Institute for Homeland Security at Sam Houston State University. It is supported by the College of Criminal Justice and the Mass Communication Department. Our hosts are Michael Asplund, Grant Threat, and Marcus Funk, who also produces and edits the show. Our music was written by Kevin Clifton, and the artwork was created by the Idea Factory, part of the Department of Art at Sam Houston State. Additional support comes from Shannon Lane, Rose Cater, Charles Henson's, and enthusiastic Bearcats everywhere.